Hey friends, <clears throat> it's uh, well, it's Tuesday and that means it's time for a podcast and I've got something to say this week. I didn't have anything to say last week and the rules of the game, as you may be aware of, is that if I don't have anything to say, I won't say anything. I think that's a kind game to play because there's plenty of noise out there and the last thing you and I need is anyone adding to the noise. <clears throat> so speaking of noise, see if we can guess what this is. Just uh, taking a sip of Victoria Bitters while I record this week's episode. It felt appropriate. I'm um, in a light-hearted mood. And I like being in a light-hearted mood because sometimes I'm not at all. Sometimes I'm weighed down by the weight of the world. And I've had had a few experiences in the last month where I've completely cooked the goose writing this book. Um, I was coaching someone, I, I don't know who it was, you, one of my clients will know exactly who it was because when I was explaining something that I normally explain to clients, um, I was listening to myself talk and I was saying things upside down and back to front. It was like the circuit board in my brain had been fried and, and there was missing pieces coming out. It was, oh dear. And so, yeah, I've gone in deep. And so I get weighed down uh, being me sometimes and and can get a bit emotional and a bit dramatic so i do like feeling light and free and i am feeling particularly light and free today and i find just a, a nice little can of victoria's bitter victoria bitter victoria's bitter no it doesn't have an s on it vb victoria bitter at the end of the day just adds to that feeling of lightness so cheers <coughs> down the wrong hole so um this morning I got up early to do some writing and take my son to work and I came home and it was about nine o'clock and Catherine and I were due to have our meeting for the day and I was waiting for her to finish what she was doing and just kind of laid down on the bed while I was waiting and next thing I know <laughs> she's tucking me in because I've fallen asleep and so I reckon I like I, I do normally have a nap in the day and uh, that's it's scheduled in my calendar for 2 30 like a full 90 minute sleep cycle so that's when i do do sleep time uh so yeah it was not nap time it wasn't time for a nap yet and yet i felt like i needed a nap so anyway um I, I fell into this kind of deep trance sleep for a very short amount of time and in that time uh had two revelations the first of those revelations was about uh your friend and mine eminem the rap singer now uh <laughs> i was astounded to have a bolt of inspirational lightning hit me about the name Eminem uh, because it turns out that Marshall Bruce, Bruce Mathers III, um, Marshall Mathers, M and M, Eminem. Incredible. And for whatever reason, that bit of information just got joined in my brain out of nowhere. I, <laughs> I can't unsee it now. You may have seen that for years. You may have never seen that. But Eminem, E-M-I-N-E-M, uh, is another way of saying M, M and M. So there you go. Uh, the second great revelation I had while in this 15-minute deep sleep was that I'm, I'm not so much as writing this book as it is writing me. So this this would be book number six, and I, I've not had an experience of writing like this one, because this book is changing me as I'm writing it, and I've I've not had that happen before. So 
Some of the themes I'm exploring and probably why my brain is being fried, they're deep themes and uh, they're all consuming. And I'm, I'm tackling subjects that people have tackled for centuries and uh, people have fought wars over and I'm having a, having a go and swinging into it. And they feel like really important topics to tackle. Um, but nevertheless, in the process of tackling them, I am being changed. I am going into parts of my psyche, exploring parts of my own sense-making paradigm that I've not touched before. And that's quite surprising and, and quite delightful, to be honest. Uh, also, it is quite dangerous. I've had a few conversations with people. I mean, to be honest, people, people frequently are surprised and distressed um, at my journey, coming from orthodox Christianity, growing up in a Christian world, being a Christian pastor, and then leaving that role to become a coach. There was no one in my world who thought that was the right thing for me to be doing, not a single person. But I, I did. I thought that was, that was a good thing for me to be doing and the only thing that made sense and felt like I was elevating and leaning into that. And, and in, I wasn't changing who I was in any way, shape or form. I just felt like I, I was a good pastor, but I, I thought I could be an excellent coach. Anyway, so that's not surprising that people have been suspicious and uh, a little distressed at times by my journey. Um, but it, the thing I find most difficult about it are the conversations I have with people who, uh, because they don't have a map of the world for where, where I'm playing in, then it's so easy to discredit everything I'm saying and doing as wrong or bad. So that I understand it, I, I do, but it's, it's not ever enjoyable. So in, uh, in a few conversations that I felt were safe, just, just, just uh, explaining the things I'm processing in the process of writing this book, uh, it became very evident that it wasn't safe and I was being really judged as, as someone who'd, who'd lost the plot, really, who'd gone off the path. And more than that, was a danger to others because if I'm off the path, then I'm leading others astray as well. I've been asked a few times in my coaching journey if I'm the devil. And, uh, you know, I get it. I get that the questions I ask, the way that I think is, is different to orthodoxy. Um, but I don't think anyone could ever accuse me of being anything less than wholehearted and, and all in. So I don't ever theorize with things. I'm an experimentalist. I'm a practitioner. I'm, I'm navigating a path for others but I'm navigating a path for myself I'm, I'm trying to work out how to live I'm trying to work out how to be me first and foremost that's that's primarily what I'm doing and then if I find there are useful things along the way then I, I feel uh, compelled I feel it appropriate to share things and never to preach things but to share uh, things that I've learned where and where they can be useful so here are some of the themes that I'm wrestling with and writing about in the context of this book and, and how they're shaping me and changing me and really pushing me into new ways of thinking about myself. They're big themes. Um, so I'm talking about uh, using leverage against yourself. So I wrote a book called Leverage, How to Change the People You Love for All the Right Reasons and Get the Relationships You Deserve. So really examining how that theme plays out within our relationship with ourselves, when our unconscious mind decides that it's had enough of being treated as though it were our enemy to be managed to be disciplined to be forced to be misunderstood and all the range of resources your unconscious mind has at its disposal to get in your way 
sabotage you, to block you, to demand a conversation. And just like in the context of relational dysfunction, there comes a time where it is appropriate to demand change. And so examining how the unconscious demands change really fights for a better relationship and that that's pure love. But, but just examining that and, and trying to describe that in a way that makes sense because it seems like such a strange concept for most people who've never examined anything other than disciplining themselves and imagine self-discipline and willpower is the only way they could ever excel. Uh, I'm, I'm exploring human nature. I'm, I'm exploring this idea of who are you at your core? Can you be trusted? Because you know, one of the core conditions in order to um, restore relationship with yourself invariably will be this question of you don't trust yourself. That's self-evident. Every amount of, sorry, every example of managing yourself is evidence of mistrust. You, you don't manage things you trust. You constantly ride them, um, compensate for them, cover them force them because you can't if you don't trust someone or something you can't ever be at peace because trusting them they'll do the wrong thing so whenever there's evidence that you're managing yourself that's because you don't trust yourself and so that's one of the first complaints in fact it is the the central first complaint of the unconscious mind in the midlife season to go can we have a conversation about this way that you treat me this lack of trust that you've got because it's it's problematic and so um I've, I've read so widely throughout my life. I love reading. I love thinking. I love exploring themes around personal development and psychology. And there's a real theme, a pattern around trust as a, as a central theme. Yeah, people who succeed in life do, do actually trust themselves. So lots of people say that. Lots of spiritual teachers have talked about that. Yet there, there seems to be a gap in the logic that, that I haven't seen anyone address. And that is, okay, great. I understand that trust is important but can you be trusted can you actually be trusted who are you at at your core are you trustworthy because if you review the data there's things you've done and said and experienced that don't look good so what do you do with those things i've i've examined i mentioned this last on the last podcast i've been examining how paul the apostle thought about his own incongruent behavior how St. Augustine thought about his incongruent behavior and their assessment around the fact that they don't do what they want to do. Instead, they do the things they don't want to do. And their assumption is that that means they're bad. And so if you're bad, you cannot be trusted. And that thinking has not only infiltrated Western theology, but Western psychology. And everyone I've ever coached has had this mistrust at the core of their operating system. So I'm, I'm writing about this idea of, like others have, You've got to trust yourself. But the thing I'm going to great lengths to do, which is the most difficult thing, is to plumb the depths of that question and, and examine all pockets of untrustworthiness. Because if, if there is any that exists, then you can't actually ever trust yourself. So that's a, that's a question of human nature. Who are we? Are we good? Are we bad? Are we neutral? Does it matter? Can you know? Uh, deep themes. Uh, I'm also looking at the the game of life i love gamification that's a theme i speak about a bit and in thinking about if life was a game then what are the rules of the game how does the game work Uh, and 
that I, I find gamification staggering because it just dials down the morality, it dials down the pressure, uh, and it helps you lean into adventure and fun and that brings curiosity at play and dials down the judgment and I think humans are consistently at their best in a state of curiosity that that lightness seems to draw out the best in us we solve the, the problem our problems in the most creative ways from a state of curiosity so gamification opens up curiosity in ways that um, rigid thinking cannot possibly so trying to consolidate what are the game what are the rules in the game of life and spiritual teachers throughout the ages have spoken at length about all these themes and there are universal patterns this golden thread of wisdom around the game of life and how do you play it um, but I, but I think the thing that I found most troubling and most overwhelming has been thinking about consciousness as a, as a gift as a, a human trait that is uniquely ours what is it and how does it work and, and are there different levels about it just considering the evolution of the brain and it, it evolving to a state where it can actually think about its own thinking just that extraordinary idea that we have the capacity to be outside ourselves and observe ourselves we can be conscious uh, and thinking about you know what is real and what is true one of, the thing, one of the things that I think, one of, perhaps one of the only things which is self-evident and universally true about us as people is that we are storytellers. We are a sense-making creature. We go into the world and, and we have to make sense of our experience. We have to decide what life means. Uh, Alan Watts, who's a particularly favourite author of mine, he says, look, the universe doesn't owe us meaning, but we must give it meaning. And so that's problematic and exciting at the same time. I, uh, I just think so deeply about this idea of story and being a storyteller. Um, every time I'm in a group of people, like I, I have this awareness about who I am, but I just I look around and think everyone is trying the best they can to be themselves. They're, everyone's having a crack at making life work. And one of the things that, is most essential to making life work is story you cannot get out of bed in the morning unless you have a story and we are the storytellers we all have very different stories um, two two of the conversations two of the painful conversations i've had with people you know coming from a very christian paradigm critiquing my worldview now has been around life after death so one conversation uh, a guy was talking to me about the story that gets him out of bed is that the only thing that matters in him, in his mind, is what happens next. Uh, and he is so compelled to preach a message around eternal salvation, life after death. So concerned about the future destination of man's souls. And in his story, um, nothing matters here. Not a single bit of this matters. All that matters here is have you got your life right with God? Have you accepted the gift of eternal life? Have you surrendered your life and trusted Jesus? Uh, and I said, wow, I, I'm, I'm the opposite. I, I do not spend one moment, not a, not a second of thought or energy of time is given to considering what happens next. It's all about here, now. This is life. I've, I am alive here that I can see. I've only got now. Uh, tomorrow hasn't come yet and it won't come because by the time I get there, it'll be now as well. And so 
this idea of how do I be me here is all that I'm consumed with. But both of us had this story. We get out, get out of bed in the morning and we have to make it work. Every one of us have got these stories. I, I just, uh, I think one of the most amazing developments in my own psychology and my own journey has been this idea of accepting the fiction, accepting that we are storytellers so we only see the world through story. Therefore, it is all subjective. We'll find meaning wherever we want to. We'll make things special if we desire. We'll find what we're looking for. I, uh, like I, I've got funny examples of that all the time when I consider it. I, I, I hired a PA a few years ago from the Philippines. Uh, a bunch of my friends were suggesting that, that was a, a really good thing to do for business development. Outsourcing key tasks, um, finding someone from the third world or the developing world who could do the tasks that you'd pay an Australian person to do it for you know a fraction of the price. So I went through a number of interviews, uh, and and I found one PA whose name was Conan, and it was a it was a name I hadn't heard since Conan the Barbarian, uh, and I just thought what a cool name, because he got a cool name. This must be a cool guy. And he came across quite relaxed. He was a bit funny. And I just thought, I got a good feeling about this guy. So one of the most important tasks I gave him was to go through my MailChimp database, all the people who've ever subscribed to my website, taken an insecurity test, followed the podcast, uh, and update their details because I realized that I hadn't set up the form fields properly when I'd set up my website. And so there were a bunch of first names missing from my database. And, and so I said, Conan, that's your job. Can you uh, email people? Can you reach out? Can you look at what other data we've got and find the missing first name so that we're not sending emails saying, dear F name or you know, worse or, or no name at all? He's like, yep, got it, Jamin, leave it with me. I'm like, you beauty, this outsourcing is brilliant. And about three months later, I, I got a few weird emails back from people saying, uh, Jamin, uh, you've sent me an email, dear Craig, and, and my name's actually Peter. It just kept happening. People were getting emails sent to them with a name that wasn't even close to theirs. And uh, it, I thought, oh, this is a glitch. I'm not quite sure what's happening here. Conan, by the way, had kind of gone a bit AWOL and, and I realised that he, he wasn't very good at what he was doing at all and uh, stopped working with him. Uh, and then a few months later realised that when I looked at my database, yeah, he'd done the job. He'd, he'd filled in all the first names, but he just guessed. Like that was his strategy. He just he just made him up. <laughs> I don't know what your name is, so yeah, Terry, uh, Betty, Mary, uh, Suzanne. <laughs> done, job done. Damon got it done. Incredible. And I the sense I made was no, this, this is great. I remember um, when I was a teenager, like growing up in church world, the pressure around sexuality was so extreme. I remember falling in love with this girl, and it was not. Uh, love that was returned which which was a consistent theme through my teenage years i had this uh, i had this notebook in my secret drawer marked top secret that was a rookie mistake i found out later when one of my friends rifling through my desk discovered this book to my sheer embarrassment but anyway every time i fell in love with a girl i'd write her name down i'd write what i liked about her and how long i liked it for and so uh, my high school years were just inundated with 
just copious names in that book. Just the list went on and on and on. And yet none of these girls decided that I was an attractive partner. And so um, I went to this Christian camp when I was 16 and fell in love very quickly, very deeply with this girl who I thought was outstanding. Uh, and unfortunately, she didn't fall in love with me. And we exchanged a few letters. And I just thought, like, I, I feel like God has destined us to be together. That's how I feel. That's the sense I made. This is so special. She's so special. The only sense I can make is, is this. And then, so I sent her a letter and she didn't send one back. And, and the sense that I made about it, I remember as a 16-year-old trying to work out, okay, God's destined this to be. She hasn't replied. Why hasn't she replied? Uh, the only possible logic I could make of that is that um, I haven't been good. Now, as a teenage boy, a young t- teenage Christian boy, um, there was only one thing really that was at the top of the list of not being good, uh, and that was masturbating. Like the pressure of a, a young, hormone-filled teenage boy not to choke the chicken was just unbelievable. Um, so, <laughs> speaking of... And so, <laughs> like, let me finish the story, right? Um, and so I decided that's the, that's the meaning. This is the story. This is what's happening. God's displeased. Uh, so what I need to do is never, like if I can go two weeks without indulging, then she'll write a letter back and it'll all be good. That's the only sense I can make. I feel like that's what God's saying to me. And so uh, I, I don't think I made two weeks and she didn't write back and it all confirmed my suspicion. But I was... I was thinking about just the funniness of that. And it was not funny then. Oh, my goodness. It was the most pressurized time of my entire life. Just the the embarrassment and the pressure and the shame associated with sexuality as a young teenage Christian boy. Bloody hell. But um, I was trying to think about how I'd tell this story and find a euphemism for masturbation. And so I looked on a website. What are other ways that people describe and... And here are the top 50 euphemisms. I need to read some of these. They're just extraordinary. Uh, Poaching the egg. Shaking hands with the milkman. Manual override. (laughs) Marching the penguin. Polishing the banister. Lone rangering. Boxing the one-eyed champ. (laughs) Celebrating Palm Sunday. Nulling the void. Visiting the safety deposit box. <laughs> Orbiting Venus. Finding Nemo. <laughs> Cuffing the carrot. Cooking cucumbers. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, goodness. Um. Taking the self-guided tour. (laughs) Playing five on one. (laughs) Making waffles. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Turning on the sprinklers. Softening the peach. Paddling the pink canoe. (laughs) DIY. Uh, scratching Yoda behind the ears. <laughs> Tapping into your potential. Oh boy. Just the VB. 
But VB, like, I got friends that are just would never, ever drink VB. Now, it's beer. It tastes like beer. It tastes like all the other beer. Beer is beer. So what they're saying no to is the story about VB. It's the story they tell who is allowed to drink VB and who is not. We're sense-making creatures. We're storytellers. We're just making shit up, trying to find our way. Oh, boy. So when, I, when I've been thinking about this sense-making, this storytelling, and the fact the universe doesn't, doesn't owe us meaning, but we have evolved to be meaningful creatures, creatures who need meaning. I, I wonder, this is what I'm wrestling with at the moment, I'm wondering if the meaning of life is that we get to choose the meaning of life. I wonder if that's enough. I wonder if there's, there's enough richness in that. At, at the moment, I, I find that joyful. I find that playful. And it, and it feels to me to be true. It feels like that's it. That's, that's each of us. We get to decide the meaning. You get, in, you get in great trouble when you don't think that's true, when you think, no, there is arbitrary meaning. There is meaning being given by a meaning giver, and you have to find real meaning and you, you deny the fact that you're a storyteller. Now, when I had a conversation about this guy who was challenging me about my life after death ticket and whether I'd got, got that stamped or not, um, you know, I, I kind of questioned his worldview a little bit. How would he come to that assessment? And he said, I mean, look, I'm, I'm just a biblical Christian. I just read the Bible and do what it says. You know, I, I laughed because, I mean, that, that's one of the more ridiculous answers to the question because it's the assumption that that's even possible, that you, you could read a, a book that's been written an awful long time ago by a bunch of people um, in the context of the time that they were alive and you could read it today and not have to think about it. You could just take a word, a sentence, a paragraph and read it and that it would have a direct application in the current context without no questions being asked. Um, what a strange idea. In no other form, no other space of, of life do we take uh, the leading thinking two years ago and consider that that still must be the leading thinking on a subject. It's no other area. So thinking about our psychology, our spirituality, our, our meaning, so it's a strange, it's a strange way. But so that, that's where you get into a trap when you go, no, no, I'm not a meaning. I, that, this meaning is objective, and I have the ability to be objective around this meaning. So if you if you're willing to consider that the meaning of life is that you get to decide the meaning, so therefore you will live a more meaningful life if you choose a meaningful story. If you choose a story that is beautiful and is and gets better and gets better and better and better and is a story that is not only good for you but good for the world. So, look, make it that what you will. <coughs> uh, you get to decide the meaning of the podcast, why I told stories about masturbation and, and laughed, whether that was rude or whether that was funny. I don't know. You'll get to decide what what you want to do with that. Uh, but I'm off to finish my can of VB and have some dinner and keep letting a book write me and seeing where I pop out the other side. I'll talk to you again soon.